Welcome to the All Saints Agape Lecture Series. This lecture was part of a three-part course on the book of Titus taught by Dr. Paul Owen of Montreat College and originally given in September and October of 2020. Enjoy. Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, we're going to pick up in uh, Titus 1, at verse 10. Uh, Titus has just finished, or Paul has just finished, giving Titus uh, the qualifications of a bishop in verses 7, 8, and 9. And we uh, spent some time going over uh, all that. And picking it up in verse 10 here, uh, he says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So you've got this reference to the circumcision in verse 10, an obvious reference to Judaism. And um, in my opinion, what you have here in uh, Titus and some of, some of the other New Testament letters as well, is some allusions to the, the, the beginning of what will develop into the Gnostic heresy in early Christianity, where you, you had these Christians in, in and among the churches who offered uh, esoteric alternative paths to God that basically circumvented the public teaching and the sacraments and the official doctrines of the church. So um, we know from the church fathers that uh, a number of these uh, Gnostic heretics had, had uh, 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 came from Judaism. Um, and it would, you would get a mixture of elements of Jewish teaching with uh, popular folk religion, uh, aspects of, of magic, and strands of mystical Judaism that all get mixed together with with some Hellenistic philosophy thrown to the mix. And um, as, the, as the first century neared its end, this became more and more prominent of a problem in the early church. The church fathers often labeled the heads of the Gnostic schools as Jews because of the, the predominance of Jewish influence in Gnostic teaching. So obviously it's a Hellenistic Judaism, but nonetheless a, a strong Jewish influence. So... Um, that seems to be going on here when he, when he talks about those of the circumcision who are deceivers and idle talkers and subordinate, uh, because he's talking about Christian Jews who are uh, advocating heresies and, and false doctrines and teaching things which they ought not, uh, which is to say, again, offering esoteric teachings that are different from the public faith of the church as an alternative way of uh, being truly spiritual and knowing God. And, you know, he mentions this idea of financial gain. 
teaching things with the, which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. And this financial gain is almost always a key motivation of false teachers, it would seem. And that goes back to the earliest decades of, of Christianity, that, that link. Whenever you see um, novel ideas or approaches to practicing Christianity that uh, are linked to, um, uh, what am I trying to say here? Anyways, um, financial motivations are often a strong element in novelties that come into the church. And hey, Paul, can I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, wasn't it the, uh, the case at this time that uh, a, a lot of teachers, uh, in particular teachers, taught uh, for sort of independent pay? Uh, I mean, like I think uh, Justin Martyr uh, had, a, had a school and I mean, that's, so it, there's sort of a custom there that the teacher gets paid by students. I mean, they didn't have established universities and I guess they sort of did, but they didn't have scholarships. And For sure. Um, but if you want to attract people to your school, one way to do that is to have novel new teachings that, you know, kind of attract students. Right. And, oh, I want to study with him. He's really got some deep insights. Right. That kind of a thing. Right. So that kind of fits right in with, with, with that. Right. Okay. Uh, so I think that there, there are teachers that would use the novelty of their insights as a way of attracting students to their tutelage. Yeah. Yeah, that's, Thank you. sure. Um, and so that's what I would say about that. And, and whether this is the beginning of, of a sort of an incipient Gnostic kind of religion, and it's not just because of here, as we get a little bit further down, there's a little more evidence for that, but, or, or whether it's just some other Jewish associated false teaching, it's clear that there are, are, are Jewish elements in the heterodoxy that Paul is opposing here and um, you've got teachers that are financially motivated who are, who are obviously uh, setting forth new ideas to attract people to their, their novelties. That sh certainly sounds like what would end up developing into these Gnostic heresies, but it's some sort of Jewish false teaching for sure. Um, and in verse 12, he says, one of them, a, a prophet of their own said, uh, Cretans, are always liars, evil beasts, uh, lazy gut, uh, gluttons. And he says in the next verse, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So that, that quote, as any study, will, uh, study Bible or whatever will show you, it's a quote from Epimenides. And he was a 6th century BC philosopher and a sort of a, a prophet of, of, of sorts. Um, and he's being quoted there. Now, of course, when he says his testimony is true, he doesn't mean, um, in other words, you've got to allow for an element of hyperbole here. You know, Cretans uh, are always, right? That's hyperbole. Paul knows that not every person in Crete is characterized in this way. After all, there's, they're establishing churches in these cities in Crete, right? But it, it, is a, it is a characteristic problem, especially the false teachers, that they have these character flaws and it kind of goes along with their financial motivation. They're greedy. Um, they're just greedy 
people of, of bad character. It's a way of his really describing the false teachers that are causing the problems in the church. And he says, not, um, rebuke them sharply, they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. So you can see there that um, there's, there's something going on here in the mid-60s where people who've received the church's public doctrine are, are turning to something different. So I don't think this is just the sort of mundane Galatian heresy of, uh, you know, clinging to the ceremonial law and not seeing how Christ has uh, fulfilled it. But there's something else going on here, the introduction of new ideas and that have a strong Jewish element to them, which, which fits that sort of Gnostic profile. Again, verse 14 may hint at these speculative philosophies based on Jewish sources, uh, which advocated all sorts of speculative theories about the relationship of the divine world to the creation. That's basically where Gnosticism uh, had its bread and butter, is asking questions about the relationship of the divine world to the, 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 the corrupt and evil created order. And verse 15, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. And he's just, he's talking here about the way that they take the public teaching and practices of the church and subvert them and aren't satisfied with them. That is to say, they, they aren't sufficient. Uh, people need a deeper kind of knowledge and uh, which the Gnostic groups would offer. You know, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, not even the church's public doctrine and practice. Um, so um, what I have here is the impure find a way to corrupt even everything good in the church, whether it be the liturgy, the music, or the Bible itself, um, the sacraments, they find a way to, to corrupt it because they're not satisfied with what has been given. Um, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And that's where, note that language, they profess to know God. The Gnostics offered a deeper knowledge of God that the public teaching of the apostles didn't disclose. And so that would, would, would fit this profile of this Gnostic false teaching as well, denying him by their works. And of course, the Gnostic sects were known for their libertinism and their rejecting of the silly morals of the Catholic Church. Uh, because basically the body doesn't matter. So why be so obsessed with what you do with your body? Um, led to a lot of moral problems in the Gnostic sects as Irenaeus and the other fathers uh, delineate in great detail. And Paul, may I jump in and ask a question sure. here? Yeah. Um, you know, verse 15 especially kind of sounds, or verse 16 kind of sounds like some of Jesus's words to the Pharisees who um, he's calling out on their hypocrisy of how they understood the law. And I was just wondering if, you know, in verse 15, when he's talking about uh, the pure, all things are pure, but unto the defiled, you know, unto the defiled. Is he talking here maybe not as much about uh, a Gnostic libertine philosophy, but about the, uh, the Jews who are still, 
you know, pushing a wrong interpretation of the law, pushing circumcision, etc. Um, except, ex I could see that certainly, you know, uh, um, and, and especially the way Christianity declared all foods clean, whereas the Jews continued to see certain foods as unclean and so forth. Yeah, but, right. Um, it, it, it seems like he's thinking here of people that have, have corrupted the faith of Christians, um, have turned aside from the, 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 the public faith of the church um, in, the, in the languages, holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught, verse 9. And um, those whose mouths must be stopped to subvert households, verse 11. This sounds like Christian false teachers. And, and so I, I would tend to think that the, the problem is not so much Pharisaical Judaism as it is some sort of Jewish Christian syncretistic philosophy that gives heed to fables and um, causes all sorts of other you know, problems. Right. So, so what we're seeing now is kind of like the second generation of problems. Yes. Of not not the pharisaical kind of issues, but now we're moving into the second generation of heresy that is coming about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. And, and this you. is what's going to end up developing into um, within just a few decades into the earliest Gnostic sect. Right, right. Uh, you know, the fathers tell us that this, this starts with people... Um, uh, you know, some of whom are mentioned in the book of Acts uh, in terms of, in other words, the fathers tell us that Gnosticism started in the first century pretty deep into it. So it wouldn't shock me that Paul would be addressing it in the 60s. Yeah, no thanks. I think Nic Nicholas, one of the, the, uh, Nicholas, one of the uh, deacons in Jerusalem, is identified by the fathers as the founders of one of the early sects. And uh, so... Um, that had a libertine element and, and, and so forth. So, um, so that's basically the, uh, just to wrap up chapter one there with those final few uh, thoughts, and we can go into chapter two. Um, so, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So Titus is not to teach speculative, esoteric, new ideas, but he's to teach from the scriptures, and he's to be he's to stick stick to the published doctrines of the Catholic faith, um, sound doctrine, uh, keep speaking those things. And of course, this assumes that there is an orthodox body of doctrine that people can be held accountable to. You know, uh, if you say speak to things that are proper for sound doctrine, that assumes people know what that is and that they expect to conform to it. And it's that kind of language that makes yeah. skeptical scholars think, well, this can't have been Paul because this sounds almost like early Catholic ways of thinking about the church. And we know that doesn't even start until the next century. So that, that's where people try to push these books later because they don't want to have Catholic Christianity being there kind of at least in a, in a basic form from the start. Mm -hmm. um, so he says, speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, the older men. So I think what you have really the rest of the book of Titus is spelling out the effects, the anticipated effects of sound teaching. 
speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. And if you speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine, this, is, this will be the shaping influence it will have on people's lives in the church. And he goes on to give different instances of this really throughout the rest of Titus. The reason that the clergy preach and teach is to produce this kind of fruit in the lives of Christians. Spiritual formation is always the true goal of pastoral homilies and communication. And even theology, when it's done properly, spiritual formation should be what is the goal of theological discourse. So he starts with the virtues expected of older Christian men. I'd say her at least around 40. Uh, it says uh, the older men. Um, Bishop Irenaeus in the second century uh, tells us that the first stage of early life embraces 30 years. And from the 40th and 50th year, a man begins to decline toward old age from the 40th and 50th year. So, and he makes that point in a section where he's discussing the life of Jesus in the first century. So we can presume that the same standard would have been normal in Paul's day, that an older man is a man who's gotten get up to his 40th year and there, thereafter. Um, the further away you get from 30, the closer you're getting to being an old man. Irenaeus has a view that uh, um, I think when, when read rightly, he, think, he feels that Jesus reached his 40th year which, by the way, a person who's 39 is in their 40th year, and uh, there's a bunch of discussion about Irenaeus and what, what he meant by all that, but uh, it seems like he was of the opinion that Jesus reached about the age of 40, um, which is not at all indefensible. Uh, I'm a full supporter of this theory. Oh, okay, yeah. I love this theory. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just to, just to back it up, this is because he, he sat at the feet of uh, Polycarp, who sat right. at the feet of John the Apostle. So uh, this, does, right. this is not a totally unsupported conspiracy theory. This has some good stuff behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think at least it tells us Jesus reached his late 30s, and he may well have been 39 when he died, which would be his 40th year. That was certainly right. the view that Irenaeus had been given. And what, a, and what a perfect number, you know, to die at the 40th year. That's, right. that's great. Right. The end yeah. of the Exodus. Right. That's right. Well, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff there. But in terms of being an older man, he's probably thinking of men 40 or more. And he gives these qualities, a couple of them you would expect, right? Sobriety. Sobriety is good judgment. Uh, temperate, right? Uh, temperate. That is, a, a temperate person exercises self-control. Um, you'd expect that. But he adds this list, reverent, right? Um, in the middle there, reverent. Um, and that means to be serious and dignified. Uh, a, a, an older Christian man should be serious and dignified. And I think it leads us to ask this question, how does that happen? How does the Christian faith make a man serious and dignified? And I think that the best answer is um, that a, a Christian man emulates that quality by his regard for the church uh, and the way that that shapes his character, um, regard for the teachings of the church, her, her clergy, her sacred times and spaces, her rituals, uh, everything that promotes the worship of God in the beauty of holiness, to use our expression from the Psalms, 
is to be revered by a man of mature character. And so we might say that the, the dignity, of Christ, the, dignity the, the seriousness of Christian character comes from the gracious effect of the dignity of elevated worship. Childish worship produces childish people and grown-up worship, dignified worship, produces serious, dignified Christian people. And so that's how I see that. Uh, and Titus is responsible for how people are turning out in, in these sorts of ways. Um, then he also mentions, interestingly, uh, being sound in faith, love, and patience, right? Mm -hmm. Sound in faith, love, and patience, which is very close to faith, hope, and love. Uh, faith, love, obviously, and patience and is close to hope. Yeah. Um, which we read ver various places in the New Testament, that, that trio. And these are key Christian virtues. Uh, faith, looking to the unseen world, not to the seen. Um, love, understanding our obligation to love God and neighbor. And then patience or hope, um, being willing to suffer uh, or being patient in suffering, patient in trials in this life, because we have the real hope of eternal reward with the saints and angels in heaven that we genuinely expect to be given us. And so that's kind of an interesting trio there. And so then we go to verse three. Uh, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So there's the older women. And it's interesting, the same reverence, you know, the older women, they be reverent, the same reverence for holy things expected of mature Christian women. Uh, I, I begin to believe that this is the gracious effect of an elevated uh, dig, uh, dignity of worship. Um, they're not to engage in slander. Um, that's not just a temptation for women, but anyone who really likes to chat or anyone that's prone to relieve the monotony of daily life by the more interesting lives of people around them is <laughs> aware, wary of this, uh, this danger, right? Yeah. Um, not given to much wine, equality also expected of bishops, right? Um, not given too much wine that was mentioned earlier of the bishops. So Paul presumes that like bishops over the, over the community, women will have a lot of influence on the culture of the church. And he, he then adds here teachers of good things. Uh, teachers of good things, the end of verse 3, which kind of reminds us of the counsel of the young man in Proverbs 1.8, do not forsake the law of your mother. Do not forsake the law of your mother, Proverbs 1, 8. Women do play important teaching roles in the church. Um, even in the first century, we see women instructing congregations through words of prophecy in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila instructing Apollos in the book of Acts. Miriam composing sacred music in the book of Exodus. Deborah adjudicating legal disputes and giving prophetic counsel in the book of Judges. So women do these kinds of things. Verses four and five focus on the role that older women are expected to play in the lives of younger women, which would naturally be the most prominent audience of their teaching, 
They're to help to equip women with practical help in their roles as wives and mothers, especially, which is the focus here. Now, of course, there is this one phrase, obedient to their own husbands in verse five. It's a little challenging in our day and age, given the way gender roles have shifted in the 20th century. Um, but I just wanted to, to make a little comment about this, and I think we have to understand this idea within the right framework. What does it mean to be obedient to your husband? Um, and I would say this, um, the essence of the expected marital obedience of women to men, their own husbands, is not doing what you're told to do. I think that that's not the idea. It's not doing what you're told to do, which I think is what often comes to our mind. I like a household slave with mandatory chores that they are supposed to do. I don't think that's what he means. But I would put it this way, doing what you ought to do, given your marital vows. You're to be obedient to your marital vows and your family obligations as a, a mother and a wife. You're to be obedient to those obligations as a Christian woman in a family. And I love the way that the, the form of solemnization for matrimony in the Book of Common Prayer puts this, and I think it's actually drawing off of particularly verse five here in Titus two. Um, when, you, when you look at the form for solemnization of matrimony, it says that wives and husbands both are to, quote, love, honor, and cherish each other and so live together in faithfulness and patience, in wisdom and true godliness, that their home may be a haven of blessing and of peace, that their home may be a haven of blessing and of peace, that Paul says that the word of God may not be blasphemed in verse 5. Wives are to be obedient by helping their husbands make their homes a haven of blessing and peace. Husbands love, honor, and cherish their wives by giving themselves up each day as caring providers. And wives love, honor, and cherish their husbands by respecting their husbands. Paul says that in Ephesians 5. And helping them raise their children in the faith and fear of God. These are their obligations. These are the, uh, this is the framework of, of what they are to obey. So, we must never confuse the apostolic order of genders within the family and even the church with the structure of masters to slaves um, in any setting, because that, that never was the way that it was understood. So I think we have to keep that all straight. He moves on to young men in verse six. Young men are expected to be sober-minded, uh, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, verse six, in all things showing yourself. Now, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine. Now I'm reading from the New King James here. In, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to save you. So he doesn't say a lot to the young men. He just says that they're to be sober-minded, which is to be clear-headed aware of the devil's strategies and their own inherent weaknesses or besetting sins, sober-minded. Um, I think the rest, you could, older men are going to want to emulate the, I'm sorry, younger men are going to want to emulate the older men. So a lot of what they ought to be aspiring to be is given already in the, the standards for the older men. Um, 
But in verses 7 and 8, Paul switches back to his expectations of Timothy, uh, showing yourself, that is you. I'm sorry, like, why did I say Timothy? It's in my notes here, and I mean Titus. Uh, but um, let, me, let me correct. Give me a second here. As soon as I touch my notes, they go all... Yeah, um, he switches back to Titus. Have I been saying Timothy all along? Or? No. I don't know. Um, so he, he switches back to his expectations of Titus, uh, given that young men will be especially susceptible to his influence as a Christian leader. After all, Titus is an archbishop of sorts over the island of Crete and has a lot of influence on the young men. So he reminds Titus of his obligations. Now, I actually would do a lot different here with the translation, and I don't want to get anyone lost, but in verses 7 uh, and, and following, um, unlike the New King James here, I'd take the words, the first three words is going with the previous verse. If you look at verse 6, it says to be sober-minded, and then the New King James puts a comma and then says, in all things showing yourself to be I would actually have it be sober, uh, exhort the young men to be sober minded in all things, comma, uh, which gives you a little bit of a different understanding of this. But uh, then showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, mm -hmm. right? Showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine. I don't, don't see the need of the semicolon there. Um, that is, in doctrine, meaning in his, his ministry of teaching. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the pattern of good works that he is to um, show in his doctrine is then delineated with three terms, integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. So, that is the pattern of good works that Titus is to teach. Those three terms express that pattern. Integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. So integrity has to do with his character, clearly. Reverence, I think, again, seen in one's regard for the dignity of sacred worship and being affected by that to make you a grown-up Christian. And incorruptibility. Incorruptibility is an interesting term. Um, you don't get it in the new translations because they follow manuscripts of the different reading, but it's an important addition. I think it points to a genuine faith that has been formed by love and will not fade away. Uh, so the incorruptibility, I think, is the, the, the permanence of his faith and spirituality. Um, the opposite of incorruptibility is somebody who has a temporary faith and then they fall away after a time. Uh, and these qualities reflect back on teaching. What that's is, right. What, what, is, what is taught or how it's taught or one's authentic relationship to what one is teaching. It's what is taught. What is taught. Yeah, because it's the pattern in doctrine. So this is what is actually, this is the doctrine. It's right. the substance of the doctrine. Um, uh, it is the pattern 
of the doctrine, oh. these qualities, uh, because he says, um, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works um, in doctrine. And then the New King James has this word showing, but that's, that's, a gloss, that's an interpretive gloss. Um, integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, uh, these, are in, these are examples of the pattern. Yeah. Um, and also sound speech. Sound speech, verse 8, is another example of the pattern of good works. Uh, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to save you. What does sound speech mean? Um, uh, well, uh, it's sound in the sense that, so I think it goes hand in hand with the idea that it can't be condemned. What makes it not condemnable is the same thing that makes it sound. It's true. It's true, and I would say, we could say specifically, it's approved by the Catholic doctrine of the whole church. Okay. And, and it can be supported by the clear witness of scripture. So yeah. that's, I would say, that's what makes it sound. That it's Catholic and it's scriptural. Um, and that also may, means it can't be condemned. Because can I have one support, What? Go ahead. I if it add. has the support of the whole church and it's founded on scripture, then it basically is not susceptible to being overthrown. Uh, what I wanted to ask you was that, and I think it would tie into this, uh, is that that last phrase in, in verse five, all of these things, do all of these things, that the word of God may not be discredited. Now, is that reference, the word of God, is that a, a reference to the logos, uh, the word of the Father made flesh, or is it a reference to the teaching? Uh, the oh, in verse five? Yeah. Uh, I see. Yes. You know, that's an interesting, you know, it is the word of God. It sort of kind of always makes your antenna go up. But I think here he means the public teaching of the church. Okay. I think he's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it is a kind of an interesting coincidence that Jesus Christ is the word of God and he's the substance of the scriptures. But I think here he means by the word of God, the, the sound doctrine, the teaching, the, 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 the more along those lines. Right. Thank you. Then verses 9 and 10 address slaves, and we'll wrap up with this. Uh, so, um, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their masters, their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Um, so there can be no doubt that Paul expects slaves to fulfill their household duties. Uh, they're not to use their new freedom in Christ to erase all norms and boundaries in their society. Uh, as though we do not all have to continue to live within the imperfect conditions of the fallen world. Um, but it's interesting that that being true, Paul also gives dignity to the calling of servanthood as being one by which they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So slaves peculiarly adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in their own unique way. And we're reminded of our Lord's own example, of course, who did not come to be served, but to serve, Mark 10.45, and of the one who in his incarnate mission took the form of a servant 
Philippians 2.7. So of household slaves actually in their own way uniquely adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by uh, the calling that they have of being servants in this world. And of course, you can apply that more broadly to any sphere of service, right? We all have jobs. We all have vocations that are means of loving our neighbors and serving one another in this world. We're supposed to look at our, our, our jobs as opportunities to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in our sphere of work. But um, household servants are a particularly apt illustration of what applies more broadly to all careers, as we would speak anachronistically, uh, more in terms of the modern world. Um, and that's 8.40, so I should stop here and see if uh, anything along the way uh, occasioned any questions or comments or anything you want to bring up at this point. We can, we can easily wrap chapter two up and lump it into chapter three next week. Yeah, that sounds good. Are there any other questions? Well, Paul, I, I, I wonder if we can say something about slavery. Uh, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of variety uh, in, in slavery uh, at this time. I, 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 rem I think it's Clement, I think it's Clement of Rome who, uh, what was that, about a, maybe a hundred years after this uh, book uh, writes, uh, he's describing the, the commitment of some of the young people in, in the Roman churches, uh, the Roman parishes, and he said that some of the young people uh, had actually sold themselves into slavery uh, in order that they might have uh, means of supporting those who were less fortunate of all things. Uh, to say, but I mean, that's a, that was a type of slavery. Right, like kind of indentured servanthood. One could, yes. I mean, sometimes the word slavery means you're not your own. I mean, you've made, you have this, now, of course, there, there are other kinds of slavery, but when I hear the word slavery, I automatically think of the slavery uh, that, that Blacks endured in the South. Right, right. In this country, because that's what right. I just automatically go there. And it's right. not exactly the same. Right. Uh, there may be instances that are, I suppose. Can you say something about that? I, uh, I mean, certainly we don't want to confuse the, the African slave trade, you know, uh, involving, uh, um, well, I mean, kidnapping and, and forcible uh, putting of people based upon putting of people into the position of slavery based upon their race and their perceived inferiority, uh, like they're just they're kind of basically apt for this role. Yeah, this was what's race. going on in the first century. That slaves were not viewed as people of particular ethnicities or racial backgrounds that makes them suitable to be slaves. Yeah. That's not part of the the mix. So. Uh, there is a, you know, there is a particularly notorious kind of evil to the African slave trade based upon its racial animus and the, just the, the prejudice that's entailed in all that, um, that we wouldn't want to read back into 
slaves were not viewed. I mean, they, they definitely had a, a social system where they were the, they were in a position of subservience, but it wasn't based upon their skin color or their perceived um, primitiveness, right? Well, they were frequently teachers. Yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. They can have all sorts of dignified roles in society, uh, but they, um, uh, but it was, nonetheless, it was a slavery, a, a condition of slavery. So right. it, it is a little bit, um, uh, we do want to be careful to make that distinction, I guess. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, the book that follows this one is... Cool. Uh, Philemon, yeah, yeah. And Philemon yeah. is the story of a runaway right. who ends up with St. Paul and then is right. he's sent back right. to Onesimus. What, what, what is it? Which one is the slave? I always forget that. No, no, no you're right. Oh, he's slept back to Philemon, uh, but Onesimus is a slave. Yeah, uh, in the hopes that he'll get his freedom because Paul wants mm -hmm. him to become a curate of sorts. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but that's, that's, that could, uh, that could get us in all sorts of, uh, right. background material in terms of the slavery, but exactly. we certainly wanted to distinguish it from the African slave trade, which had a peculiar racial evil animus to it. Yeah. Um, can I say something? Sure. Yeah. My, um, my study Bible notes indicate that, um, Slavery was a, a basic element of Roman society. Um, and so the impact of Christianity on, upon slaves was a vital concern of the early church. They wanted, the early church wanted to reach out to those who were enslaved um, because, the, because they had no legal rights whatsoever, but they could give a unique and powerful testimony um, to their uh, to the gospel by their willing faithfulness and obedience to their masters, and so so there really was uh, an outreach, an evangelistic outreach to to that community um, of people um, because it was just it was a given in Roman society there was the slave group. Yes, yeah. yeah. Some of some of the early uh, uh, priests and, and deacons in Rome, within the city of Rome, uh, were slaves. Right. Uh, and, and, and it's interesting because when, when a patrician died and he left it because he left his, his, his wealth to his, his wife uh, frequently, she was a Christian. I mean, this is where some of the, the original titular churches in Rome come from. And, uh, and and uh, I mean there there are some cases where the women wanted to remarry, but, but they didn't want to remarry a patrician because that messed everything up, uh, and and they couldn't remarry a slave not publicly, but they did remarry slaves privately, with the permission of of bishops. This is very early, like before two fifty. Uh, there's actually evidence of that. Interesting. It, I, that's just fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, the whole slavery thing, there's lots of background material on that. I, I would have spent, I could easily have spent 30 hours digging into that stuff. Uh, so I, I didn't, I don't have all that on my, on my, uh, uh, at my fingertips, but that is certainly a, a very important issue.
Yeah. This is this is a fascinating. It's been a long time since I've read Philemon and paid much attention to it. But I was looking at Gregory the Great's uh, Pastoralia the other day, and, and I mean Gregory the Great wrote this to his sent this out to his priest as a manual for here's what here's how you uh, here's how you care care and feeding of parishioners. Uh, from Gregory to his priest. And what you have here, it just occurs to me, is Paul is doing exactly that. Oh, yeah. With Titus. He yeah. sent him a book of pastoral care. Yeah. Uh, and and something that he obviously then, my guess is, they made copies of this, yeah. ASVP, and he sent it out to his priest. Right. Uh, and said, do this stuff. This is what you do. Yeah. Any questions, call me up. We'll We'll talk about it. Oh, that, yeah, it's, it's definitely patterned after this. Yeah, it, it's fast. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Paul. And yeah. Um, yeah. if possible, we'd love to have you back last week to next week yeah. to finish this up. Sure. And um, sure. hopefully we can see everyone then. Uh, thank you again. And, 